Hey, hey, hey everyone, this is Kim C, and you're listening to The Year of Underrated Stephen King, a one-woman book podcast that gives you the good, the bad, and the ugly from King's underrated works. So welcome everyone to episode 29. This book we are about to discuss was a very unexpected pick for me, ladies and gentlemen, but I started plucking roses in the Garden of King not too long ago. First was the Rose Red miniseries, which was last week's episode, and that rose led to this rose, which is the underrated title I wasn't super excited to read, if I'm being honest with everybody, but I can confidently say to you now, I am really glad I read it, and that is 1995's Rose Matter. So to be completely transparent with the court today, my friends, I was actively avoiding this novel. Um, I knew it was about domestic abuse, so I was more than happy to file it at the bottom of the underrated novel pile along with Richard Bachman's Rage because I knew it was going to be a super emotional hellscape to read it. and. I just I just knew. But serendipitously, via the podcast, I've recently made some friends with some awesome book-loving ladies, Jess and Kendra, who host their own book podcast called Palaver Uncovering Weird Lit, and they're passionate King fans like myself, and they said, hey, we're reading Rose Matter, read it with us for our next episode, and in my heart, I was like, <laughs> like, the sound of like a squeaking balloon if you're letting the air out of it where it's uh, just a very whiny deflation. But at the same time, I really felt encouraged that I wasn't going to read it by myself so I could kind of shoulder the burden and uh, have somebody share the pain with me a little bit. I was I was all for it. So I dove in, albeit reluctantly, with Rose Matter. So I headed into it with much trepidation and with good reason, folks, because wow, just wow, guys. So uh, this is a hard one. This is a hard one. Uh, This one is, let's just say there were a few moments where I put the book down because the overwhelming violence and horror and sadness was at times too much. Um, This was a very rough narrative for me and one that really took a lot out of me, heart and soul. And I think I may need a catharsis corner after it to digest all the things. Um, But I think it was so challenging because it's both frustrating and fascinating because it's such a feminine space that King embodies. He really presents a lot of feminine energy in these pages, which is admirable and intriguing and makes me really curious as to why he wanted to be in the headspace of this very dour, downtrodden female. So I like the exploration of this female energy, but what's upsetting is that he absolutely bulldozes this energy as well. So more on that in a little bit. But a few months back, a few months, I have no concept of time, but uh, earlier in the podcast this year, I read my first Richard Bachman novel called The Long Walk. 
and that one I did enjoy, but oh, holy hell, that was just bleaker than bleak, and there is for me, at least for concerning Rose Matter, something about it and its darkness specifically aimed at women, it's aimed at the soul and nature of women. For me, that cut way deeper than the long walk, way, way deeper than the literal Holocaust death march of the long walk. So as a woman, I really, you know, hate to genderize this too much, but it is such a personal book in a way, I think, especially for women. And King really explores some dark stuff here. And just a heads up to the gals on this one, it's it's rough simply because he's writing about such an intimate space and exploring woman as a wife and as a mother specifically and what's even worse is there's also the healing space of a woman's group and the therapy zone and friendships and the road back from trauma and he blows it up and i mean blows up the bridge and collapses it in this book which made this narrative pretty heavy on the heart, but, and this is the happiest but I can muster, there are some really compelling, interesting, super soaked in Greek mythology, magical realism, surrealism moments in this book where we're literally transported to another world, another time, and if you liked Lisi's story, there are some super close parallels to Lisi's story and Booyah Moon that ripped me right out of the sad parts and got me thinking and imagining and connecting stories. And and for that, I perked up and enjoyed the puzzling nature of this book. But uh, concerning the awful parts of the book, I think getting to the interesting slash transporting chapters were quite a breath of fresh air that was really needed. And those zones definitely made me glad that I slogged through and arrived. So Rose Matter is a lower rated, under rated King novel, and if I were to sell this novel to you, as I think many King readers don't have this on their radar at all, if, if I had to sell it, I would ask that you read this book too if you want to engage with one of the most disgusting villains King has ever written that I've experienced thus far, but also explore some really interesting chapter cuts where we're transported into another world, as well as connect the Greek mythology King is playing around with. I am such a sucker for classic stories, fairy tales, Greek myths, Roman mythology, all that. So I really nerded out and enjoyed it quite a bit. But the cutscenes are long and very rich and they totally make this novel puzzling and cool and experimental, which did keep me on board. The two huge cutscenes we have uh, present in the story completely make the novel for me. And we're going to talk about those in greater detail coming up a little bit later. But as I was reading Rose Matter, two adjectives were really firmly rooted in my subconscious and they just kept popping up as I was making my way through the story. But before I tell you the adjectives, if you guys listened to my earlier coverage on Under the Dome, I was absolutely drowning in hatred for the Under the Dome bad guy, the infamous, unkillable Big Jim Rennie. 
It took me weeks to get his stink out of my head, guys. I freaking hate his guts and channeling some of my old male co-workers, I think this phrase appropriate. If he was on fire, I wouldn't pee on him to put it out. So I am not, so not about Jim Rennie and I will happily accept position as president of the I Hate Jim Rennie Club. Um, and uh, at the time earlier this year when I was reading Under the Dome, I was convinced he must be other than Randall Flagg and a few other big bad king villains, one of the worst there is. Then, then my guys, I read Rose Matter and my goodness, I, I'm almost speechless. The villain in this novel, uh, you guys, I have so much spewing volcanic unquenchable hate and disgust for this character. I can't even speak. I I can't speak. I I will speak on it soon enough in our in our character section, but at present I'm just I'm almost in cerebral shock <laughs> and disbelief when I think back on this horrifying villain King created. I just my my brain kind of just stops in its tracks and I, I'm just speechless and I'm just shaking my head with my mouth agape because it's so off the rails, this, this monstrous character. But as I was reading Rose Matter and having frequent chapters with this disgusting character called Norman Daniels, the words that kept resounding in my mind were ugly and symbolic. So firstly, we have Ugly. Uh, this book is ugly in a lot of ways, guys. We have a narration of alternating perspectives, one being Rosie McClendon, our main protagonist, who we love, who we're cheering for, and then we have this monstrous, menacing, racist, rapist, sadist, cannibal murderer who is hunting her down and pillaging the world around him to get to Rosie. And the time spent with him on the page, hearing his despicable thoughts on humanity make this book really ugly. Ugly is the best word I can describe it with because this perspective from the character on life, on people, it made me ill. It, it just makes me sick. Um, secondly, we have symbolic, and this was the word that kind of perked me up a bit because like the most treasured underrated novel of Duma Key, please head back a few episodes to listen to my coverage on that one, that novel features a lot of art, specifically drawings and paintings in a great way. And here we have King writing about another painting, but even more so, King is really steeped in Greek mythology and painting with words that go past art, inside art, and kind of combined myth and art in a way that make these individual moments where the book absolutely goes off the tracks. But he really does give us a visual feast, but what I like is that it's a combination of myth and art which is different from Duma Key, um, and I thought that was pretty unique and pretty original and super visual and very surreal, and I can't wait to talk about that with you guys. So 
Uh, for me, Rose Matter seems to be one of those novels where there are so many visual symbols I'm holding in my mind because I know they're significant and it's happening with so many things that I'm pretty overloaded and I find myself wondering, are these significant? Is this piece of cloth significant? Is this gold ring significant? And I... I, I, I'm wondering, is everything significant or am I just putting too much mental value on the wrong things? What should I be holding on to? But because everything is so vivid, I'm holding on to all of it and it's not a bad thing for the most part. But those vivid items in stories definitely take on a larger-than-life quality, and we have a lot of that in Rose and Red. And these questions that I, was, I found myself asking myself in the second half of the novel, that juggling um, between, you know, what's significant? What is that? What is this? Uh, what is this connected to? All of that juggling and those questions definitely made the book worth slogging through some of the rough parts. Uh, it's a very mentally active reading session in the second part, which I greatly appreciated. So more on the symbolic stuff in a bit, but to recap, ugly and symbolic are the foundations for Rose Matter. Ugly, I realize, is a very strong word, and although it doesn't always have to carry a negative connotation, for example, some ugly paintings can be charming and ugly clothes can have quirk and character, but when I say ugly, it does mean negative for me in this novel because the parts that are so ugly are derived from a heinous, disgusting character who I wish swift and painful death upon. So for me, ugly is a bad thing when it's mentioned here. However, despite the very emotionally painful subject matter overall, as I've kind of mentioned, I'm really glad I read Rose Matter because at the end, I had and still have a very kind of puzzling what are you, book? Uh, that's the phrase I have in mind. That's the reaction I have where there's a lot that repelled me as the reader, but there was also a lot that kept me thinking, kept me involved, kept me turning pages, and that's what we're going to explore here. I really enjoy that Rose Matter kept, and now that the book is down, has in conclusion left me with a feeling of curiosity, and that is a good thing, guys. Having said that, I'm hoping you guys will pick up this super underrated pick sooner rather than later because it's very interesting and attention Dark Tower fans, I think I'm going to need your help on this one. So if you're a tower junkie, please stick around as there's a huge section in this novel, our two cutscenes, that takes place in the city of Ludd, I hope I'm saying that right, which I researched as being the city that's featured in the Wastelands, which I think is Dark Tower 3. Um, for those of you who are new to the show, to my everlasting shame, I haven't yet read the Dark Tower series. I know a little smidgen about it, but my plan is to crack open the Gunslinger January of 2021. That is, of course, if uh, we're, you know, planet Earth is still spinning, but I'm gonna do it. I mega, mega promise. I know I should have done it already, etc., etc. But it's actually been great to get a lot of awesome advice and assistance from listeners to get me ready beforehand. So I'm gearing up for Dark Tower, I promise, but 
uh, I, I do need your help on this one guys because our girl Rosie does make it to Midworld in this novel pretty sure so Rose Matter is said to be the final book in a trilogy featuring a female protagonist and the theme of violence against women, domestic abuse, etc. This isn't an official trilogy like the Bill Hodges trilogy, but it's an unofficial sort of observation of three books in a row written in the 90s featuring female protagonists and trauma. The first in the trilogy is Gerald's Game, followed by Dolores Claiborne, and then concluding with Rose Matter. And because I just gotta make it super complicated, I actually did this backwards, where Rose Matter I've read first, as I've not yet read the other two, mostly because I don't feel I have the emotional resilience to read them at this time, as I'm a little sensitive, uh, I'm a delicate flower, as I feel many of us are these days, but I was quite surprised I was able to make it through Rose Matter, actually. So I think I may continue to work backwards and will most likely tackle Dolores Claiborne coming up and then Gerald's game a little later on. Much later on, if I could help it. My little heart <laughs> took a little beating with this one, guys, so I'm gonna have to recover but King has said in either a verbal interview or a written interview I'm not too sure that Rose Matter was trying too hard quote and I think we're gonna explore that a little bit now and a bit later on as well but some readers think the Greek mythology thing was too heavy which I enjoyed it a lot because I love that kind of stuff and the stories and I'm pretty well versed in them but there is a lot of it. There are several references to various myths, like all over the place. And when we explore them, uh, you might agree that there's perhaps too many. Uh, but when I nerd out in this section, I'll kind of highlight which ones were the strongest. Um, because what's interesting is what I think King does is take the myths and take his narrative and he kind of makes a soup out of them, which is what I found really great. So he takes the myths and their core sort of outcomes and principles and spins it around, and then they kind of are in this weird stew pot. I'll explain more on that later. Um, but other readers have said Norman Daniels as the villain is so over the top that he's almost a caricature, which, yeah, he is, but it's believable and that's what makes it so difficult to digest for me. Uh, this novel is 25 years old and unfortunately the menace of Norman Daniels is totally plausible in the horrific climate of today. So just putting that out there, uh, he really is a terrible villain. So over the top he may be, but sadly it's timely and it works. Um, I could totally um, you know, a few years ago, we had a crazy headline about some man in Florida on bath salts ate a guy's face off. You know, we're living in crazy times. So um, I don't feel that Norman Daniels is over the top at all. I feel he's right at home um, in the horrors of our planet and time. But uh, many readers think that he might have just been too much. But more on that a little bit later, we'll talk about what we've got, uh, the blueprints of Norman Daniels, and you could see uh, what we're working with there. 
Another point is others think he may have been trying too hard to connect it to the tower and this is where I need Dark Tower fans help because I can't speak on that one in particular. But apparently there is a character slash creature toward the end of the story who is tower connected, although I'm not sure how so I will need tower fans help on whether or not they feel the tower connections are poorly placed. As far as trying too hard, I don't know but it's a great point to keep in mind as we go forward into our analysis. At this point in time, I'm going to provide you a brief summary on Rose Matter, but before I do, when I was reading this book, especially the early chapters where the subject is really dark and heavy, I couldn't help but remember a really well done thriller that I remember watching when I was younger. Knowing my mom, I probably saw it when I was way too young, but this is a film starring a young Julia Roberts. I think it may have been one of the films that really shot her into stardom, but it's 1991 Sleeping with the Enemy. Talk about a title, folks. But Julia is 24 in the movie, and she's just bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and so lovely, and she plays a young housewife to a wealthy but super controlling guy who physically abuses her, and she decides to plan an escape, and she fakes her death in this really clever way and dips out. She takes a bus to nowhere and starts a brand new life, but unfortunately her evil husband discovers she's still alive and comes after her, and the whole movie was massively successful, and it's actually still still cool and very watchable to this day. It's definitely aged well, please check it out. But I'm convinced it influenced King because we have key moments from that movie loosely incorporated in this novel. Julia wears a wig and takes a bus to a Midwestern town, and Rosie McClendon also takes a bus to nowhere. There's a local man who pursues her, falls in love with her, same thing happens to uh, Rose. So lots of early roots of Rose Matter um, from Julia Roberts's movie, and uh, Julia's awesome in the movie if you just want to see some a, a rising, talented star. And the actor they chose for her husband, guys, is this uh, guy named Patrick Bergen, and he has you guys, the most frightening mustache face ever. He's so scary. He's quite terrifying to me. Still, to this day, he has this piercing, unrelenting stare that he's just gonna snap your neck and it made me afraid of mustaches for a long, long time. So if you want to do some Rose Matter pre-gaming, I suggest the film Sleeping with the Enemy to see a really well done thriller, but you'll definitely see the roots of Rose McClendon Daniels for sure. My summary is that 32-year-old Rosie McClendon has been married to police officer Norman Daniels since she was 18, and since her wedding night, Rosie has been beaten, raped, as well as emotionally and psychologically tortured by her husband. While doing laundry, a drop of blood on clean white sheets spirals Rosie into action. Having truly realized this man will eventually kill her, she puts on her sneakers, grabs her purse and sunglasses, and walks out of her life. She walks to the nearest bus station and heads to an unknown town 800 miles west and finds relief, assistance, and new friendship at the Daughters and Sisters Women's Shelter. Quickly, Rosie's life begins to turn around for the better, but Norman, unable 
unable to just allow his wife to leave him, decides to cash in some vacation days from work and track down his wife and give her the ultimate payback lesson for defying him. Ugh, you guys. Okay. Uh, if you're new to the show, what I'm going to do in our next section is discuss the heroes, villains, and honorable mentions because we have quite a few to discuss and some rich ones at that. We're going to dive into the characters who set the stage. My third section will be the what's unique portion, my observations, and my fourth section will discuss what's working and what's not, my favorite parts, least favorites, and questions. I have about the book as well as final thoughts on Rose Matter. There will be moderate spoilers, delicate ones, but no final character outcomes, but I'm going to have a few plot point reveals for my discussion, so tread with caution. But thank you guys for sticking with me and let's head in to Heroes, Villains, and Honorable Mentions with our Rosie Reel. Welcome one and all to the character analysis section of Rose Matter. I'm doing things a little bit different. Usually I do characters a little bit later on in my novel analyses, but I'm trying out a new thing and uh, maybe you guys can let me know if you like it a little better to learn about the characters before I go into some of the more unique aspects of the book, what I enjoyed, etc. But I really couldn't wait to talk about characters characters regarding this novel because the ones we have on here, some shine very bright. Some shine bright in the infamous negative way, uh, but they definitely make their presence heard. And I think we've got some gems in, in Rose Matter, definitely some that make me very curious. But the first one of the four I'd like to share with you is our hero and our survivor, Rosie McClendon Daniels. She is our star and our main protagonist, and I really wanted to kick us off with having her be our first person of discussion. So many King readers that I researched in looking into the moderately low rated rose matter i want to say on average this one is in the three three and a half to three star area but many readers found her to be a little flat but i in taking that statement to heart i was kind of mulling it around and i I think the flatness is on purpose because I really feel Rosie is a representation of so many women. Uh, I think it happened more so in the past than it does now, now that we have the internet, but many women who marry young and who sort of get imprisoned in domestic life and in this case, domestic abuse and usually children are involved, so their entire existence revolves around raising and protecting their kids and keeping the home. So we first meet Rosie, I want to say, oh my gosh, 
early 20s, but when we really sort of connect with her again, she's 32. And God bless the 30s because there's something really relevatory about that age, about that decade, uh, because we, we see her again in the midst of a super bold decision where she makes the move to save her own life. Unfortunately, what's also epically tragic about Rosie is that her mother, father, and younger brother were killed in a car accident in what sounds like her early 20s. We don't get a super concrete age as to when that occurred. So when Rosie makes this super pivotal decision, she has no one to support her, um, nor does she have at that moment in time anyone who loves her. And she's been with this guy all her life. She never had another boyfriend. She didn't have to work because Norman was the breadwinner and probably wanted it that way. So she was just a housewife. And so uh, when, when she kind of makes that decision, there is so much stacked against Rosie. And I think Rosie probably would have never left if her pregnancy would have happened. But yeah, one of the most horrifying parts of this novel is uh, in the first few pages, we find out that Rosie um, was, was pregnant. And uh, I don't want to go too much into it at this time. I'm going to talk more about it. When I discuss the the monstrous Norman Daniels, but we found out we find out that Rosie was pregnant, and um, she is really a blank canvas of a lady uh, outside of that almost motherhood. And I think uh, what makes her interesting is that we see her development. We actually see Rosie discovering life and joy and new friendships. Uh, she gets a new job and falls in love with a really good person. So Rosie is our star and flat she may be, but I think there is a tremendous purpose to the flatness. The flatness is a message to kind of show the sadness of what it's like for many women around the world who leave their dangerous spouses and realize after so many years they don't have modern day skills, they've been out of touch. and. Uh, you know, once more, thankfully our tech age kind of keeps us closer in the loop than we realize, but um, someone like Rosie makes me remember the women who were hopelessly stuck, um, just hopelessly stuck, those housewives and homemakers who didn't really have a lot that would let them hit the ground running, which is why it's so easy to stay in those dangerous environments. But it does remind me, characters like Rosie, uh, remind me about women like her who have uh, sort of been on the wrong side of time and to have compassion for the older lady who may not be able to open a PDF file because those cases are real for sure. And I think they were probably a lot more real in King's own life, um, especially. And I, I appreciate that he's kind of bringing a character that would otherwise just dissolve in the background a little bit and kind of fade into the wallpaper. But thankfully, once Rosie leaves her, her terrible situation with Norman, 
her life opens up so much and so much good rushes in and I couldn't help but connect the symbolism of the rose um, of rose being someone who blooms and I think we see Rosie in bloom after she leaves Norman and that's a real treat a real good part of the novel is King sort of takes us through this thorny bramble bush forest where we're just all cut up and scratched as the reader and then we get to this place where we we do see a lot of joy rush in to Rosie's life as well as light and it's a little like watching a rose in bloom she just opens up to all this good stuff but as far as a blank canvas um, I think we we need to embrace her as a blank canvas because she isn't blank for too long um, and the blankness is on purpose because she was silenced by cruelty for so long um, so the flatness she there's not stellar super huge character aspects of Rosie that come through um, she gets a job she but this lady has just kind of kept her head down for so many years that like I think that embracing the flatness of her character is a reminder that she's a symbol for so many women, but there's lots to like about Rosie, but she definitely needs more time on the page in order for that to really come through. My other hero I'd like to mention is a little bit of a comedic relief character, but she's pretty awesome, and her name is Gertrude Kinshaw, also known as Gert. And she is a large black lady, and I mention her size because it is part of her character in a great way. But she is second in command at the Daughters and Sisters Women's Shelter, and she teaches self-defense to the ladies and works hand-in-hand with Anna Stevenson, who's the owner. But what I love about Gert, she's just sharp, she's always on the lookout, always paying attention, and she straight up saves the day in this book, guys. She was on the case, and when everybody else was distracted and having fun and letting loose Gert was just had hawk eyes and she recognized Norman Daniels and <laughs> I'm laughing because this was such an enjoyable part of the book for me guys I don't know if everybody felt this way but I love this and there is an epic epic brawl between Gert and Norman and it's hilarious and awesome I, I enjoyed it. I don't know if others enjoyed it as much. Um, if I read it again, I could potentially see how it could be taken either way of something sort of crassly comical or silly, but I saw it as, as kind of cool where Gert just uses her resources in this environment with Norman, but she's really brave and she's a great presence in the book. And honestly, looking back, I think this may be my favorite fight scene that I've read from King so far. It's unique. The elements involved in the fight are unique and there is something that Gert does to Norman that is so awesome. I want to tell you, but at the same time I don't because I want you to experience the glory of this fight scene for yourself, especially the dialogue leading up to it. It's so good. Uh, it's funny. It's unforgettable. But at the same time, it's 
it's awesome and it's very um a woman on top and a woman in total power and making norman as small as he should be so i do wish that king was a little bit more kind toward her in his narration i lo a lot of people have commented over the years that King can be quite brash and crass in his treatment of overweight characters especially, and I think he hovers that line a little bit of going moderately too far um, concerning Gert and people of size. She deserves better for sure, but I think that many King readers have discussed that that's an aspect of King's work that doesn't really age gracefully. But more on that in a little bit. So my third character is an honorable mention, and this is Bill Steiner. I'm going to talk about the romantic aspect of the book a little bit later uh, in the other sections, but Bill Steiner is so great, and I just, I just kind of have my hands over my heart when I think about Bill, mostly because you know, if you go down the laundry list of his character, he's he's fine. He's just a vanilla good guy, but he is an amazing good guy when you set him next to the horrors of Norman Daniels. So when we first meet Bill Steiner, he's co-owner of the pawn shop he runs with his dad, and he gives Rosie the bad news that her wedding ring is worth nothing. It's totally worth pennies, but that's where they meet up. And uh, he soon reveals himself to be an absolute foil of Norman Daniels because he is the polar opposite and he really highlights the terrible aspects of Norman by being such a good guy. Uh, Bill is just, he's, he's like someone that every single person out there would probably enjoy meeting because he's just down to earth, sweet, very patient, and he they have the best date, guys. They have the most perfect date, he and Rosie. Um, what I also enjoy is he's super upfront with how he feels about her. There's no games. He's just confidently out there putting in his intentions up front. He's incredibly respectful. And when Rosie shares her pain, he listens and he doesn't overly coax her or soothe her in a babying kind of way. He's just there to support and encourage and listen, which I really, really liked. He's a total ally. And he's funny and charming, but it's all very subtle. And uh, thinking about their date, I really think that the date between Bill and Rosie, as well as in the dead zone, if you remember Johnny and Sarah's date at the fair at the beginning of the book, it's just precious fiction from King, and it's so great to be a part of. Uh, Bill is a good man, and I like that King inserted this foil to kind of indicate and remind the reader that not all men are murdering scum, and that some are awesome and can help build a new perspective on love and gentleness and tenderness and all the mush. Um, it's I love Bill's presence in the book. I, I kind of love who he is for Rosie and my theory. I talk about this when I discussed uh, the book with Jess and Kendra on their podcast, but I feel, this is just a little spidey sense moment, I think that King is writing about himself in in Bill. There's a lot of sort of king expressions that are just charming and witty and intelligent, but also just sweet average Joe stuff. And I, I feel like 
king as a charming uh, single guy is on the page. I think that he is writing himself as Bill Steiner and it's kind of great. It's working. I like it. So I love that we have a good guy and there's nothing in super you know deep about bill we don't get that too much he is just a vanilla cookie cutter good guy but he is so needed he's that glass of water that you really need reading this book because it be rough and the desert sands be high and unforgiving as we head into our villain oh god you guys norman daniels so I've already expressed how horrified I am by this guy um, pretty much from moment one. He's truly the worst, my friends. Um, sadly, Norman is a cop, and he's a bad cop, of course he is, uh, as well as being a 100% irredeemable villain. Uh, King alludes t about the character of Norman that he was both physically and sexually abused by his father as a child. So, I appreciate that that's there, it explains a lot, but unfortunately it really falls on deaf ears for the reader because it comes at a time when he's already committed such heinous acts against Rosie and others that I really don't care all that much. I, it doesn't color him in a brighter light for me, nor does it give me any teaspoons of sympathy in his direction. It's very much like a wild, raging, foaming at the mouth Cujo is chasing me, and then someone tries to tell me, well, he was abused by his owners. He's really a sweet dog. It's like, listen, don't care, can't care. He's awful now. He's a predator now, and I need to get away from him as far away from him as possible right now. Like, that's how I feel about Norman. If you remember from The Dead Zone, we had a bad villain in that one by the name of Greg Stilson, whose first few moments on the page are violently kicking an animal to death. It's terrible. It's horrifying and really unforgettable, but Daniels takes the ace on that one because in the first few pages of this novel, he beats Rosie so bad she miscarries their baby. That's how he's introduced. It's disgusting, and he, she's sort of screaming in pain um, for him to stop because she is pregnant, and he says very callously, you'll have another one. Like, he's, he's the worst. He's the worst, guys. And um, I, I think it's one of the guys on last podcast off, on the left. Those gents are so funny. But one of them said something great that I've just remembered concerning a real-life serial killer. And he says, I hope he's rotting in hell getting anally raped by demons. And, <laughs> and it made me laugh and it, it kind of stuck in my mind. And I think that would suffice immensely for Norman Daniels. He's He's deserving of of um, of that, most definitely. And what's kind of fascinating, and this is a another King landscape tie-in, is one of Daniels' fake names. As he's on the hunt for Rosie, he's not going by his real name, and so he lists the name Alfred Dodd when he's hotel hopping. Which, if you guys remember, 
from my coverage on The Dead Zone, we have a super creepy Frank Dodd, the serial rapist and murderer who was terrorizing Castle Rock for several years. Um, so I think my hypothesis is that King has taken the roots of Dodd and just rammed them up because not only is Daniels a rapist and murderer, he's a biter, which is super creepy. He loves to bite people open and bite off parts of them and potentially unknowingly consume chunks of them, which makes him a total wild beast uh, for sure and this definitely plays into his fate later on in the novel but Norman Daniels is a beast and the expression some dogs need just need to be put down is totally appropriate concerning Daniels. He's not only that, he's such an ugly human being, guys. He's just so choked with obsession and hate and racism and misogyny. And one of the things that's a resounding plot point in the novel is that when Rosie was escaping, she borrowed his bank card and withdrew $300 and threw the card in the trash. And she she stole 300 bucks. That was it. That was all she took. And he can't get over it. He is obsessed with punishing her for taking his card, his money. He can't let it go. And almost every time he has a solo moment where we're just hearing his disgusting, rambling thoughts, he mentions the bank card and he can't let Rosie go. He can't let her get away with this crime against him. And in general, he just can't let her leave. She's his property and he's a psychopath and just wants to beat her and murder her for going against him. And what's crazy is once Norman sort of goes after Rosie, he unleashes this death wish by hunting her down and tracking her down relentlessly. And it almost seems that when Rosie left his life, he kind of officially went off leash and every innocent bystander is at risk. So, um, one reviewer of Rose Matter mentioned that Norman, Norman Daniels is just too much. He's just too evil. Um, and I, I, I think I can get on board with the too evil, but, and it is too much for sure, but I don't feel it's out of place, but I am noticing my reaction, um, toward Norman Daniels, and it is very, very different than, like, with Jim Rennie or some of the other bad guys out there where... I'm immensely upset by who they are, but with Norman Daniels, I just don't care about him at all, and I want him dead immediately. Like, he is a loud, barking dog that I just want put down. Um, a diseased, rabies-infested dog. Um, so, whereas, and I never thought I'd say these words, but in comparison between the two, Big Jim Rennie was about lies and manipulation to get power and position, and he did resort to murder to do that, but they were hush-hush murders and hidden away, and it was all to preserve his facade as town selectman in Chester's Mill. But Norman Daniels is, pun intended, a bull in a china closet, like the old expression goes, and the bull, coincidentally, is the symbol attributed to him in this book. He is a maniac who leaves a bloodbath everywhere. He, everywhere he goes, he's just leaving dead bodies and a trail of devastation. 
And keeping Rosie under his thumb perhaps quieted that monster inside him for a few years, but not totally, because we learn he strangled prostitutes and outright mutilated and murdered one who tried to testify against him while he was married to Rosie. So I will agree, he he really is too damn much, um, where I just shake my head and go, you're the worst, you're the absolute worst, I hate you, there is nothing redeemable about you, you just need to be ended swiftly. Uh, you need to walk into a wood chipper stat. So for Norman Daniels, it's just death and nothing less. Like, that's what he deserves. So perhaps kind of investigating and sifting through that, that is a bit weak in terms of character because in fiction, they instruct that it's recommended one should always be floating in that complex zone of a little bad, a little good. You can be, you know, a villain, but you can have some good in you in order to create that dynamic for the reader. But Nope, nope. This guy is like Cujo in that he's just a rabies-infested monster who will kill you if given the chance, and he just needs to be taken out. And for me, Norman Daniels just makes me shake my head. He's he's the worst. Oh my gosh. Okay. So before I recap, I had one little side note that I wanted to throw your way. Um, and that is, <laughs> and I wrote down here, is that you, Bachman? And so... Granted, I've only read two Bachman novels, but one thing I noticed right away was the more brazen and sort of rude narrative persona that Bachman has. He's mean, guys. He's just really mean. And I think Daniels is really mean. And he reminds me a little bit, granted, not as um, intense, but I think Daniels is the more steroided version of Ben Richards from The Running Man, which I covered a few weeks ago. Um, Ben Richards was relatively a good guy, but he was more than willing to express interest in raping a woman he didn't like and other terrible things against innocent people. So I feel like the unpleasantly in-your-face and sort of gratuitously upsetting nature of Bachman may have been moderately channeled with the character of Norman Daniels, guys. I just... I couldn't help, but this was one of the moments where I put down the book during one of Norman's chapters, and I was just like, God, this is so Bachman, and I know that I don't really have the street cred enough to express that, but just of what a difference I sense when I read Bachman, and then when I jump back to King, it's like, hmm. So I wonder if he kind of put the Bachman hat on a little bit in those Norman chapters. So to recap our four characters, we have our lovely, blooming Rosie McClendon as our hero. Our second hero is Gert Gertrude Kinshaw, who's great and hilarious and saves the day. My honorable mention is the sweet, sweet, lovely, good man, Bill Steiner, who is a love interest for Rosie, and I couldn't be more relieved and happy to have a good guy in this narrative. And lastly, we have the scumbucket, Norman Daniels, who is the worst. And he's oh, he's left me so exhausted, guys. I'm like looking at my thoughts here and I'm just like, I, oh, he, he has just sucked my energy. He's, uh, he's the worst. So if you are intrigued by maniacal megalomaniac psychos in King's work, 
please read Rose Matter because Norman Daniels is somebody that we need to talk about, guys. So, and then uh, that's all I have for characters, guys. Those four. There are a few more that may pop up a little bit later in the investigation, and I'll be sure to inform you as we go along. But at present, let's venture a little deeper into the Rose Matter painting and take a look at what's supremely unique about this novel. Welcome to the section of the podcast where we talk about what's unique about these given novels, what King is doing differently, and we have a lot of compelling stuff here in Rose Matter, stuff that I think propels it to the interest box. So I want to talk about three things that are probably the most prevalent in Rose Matter, and the first one is magical realism and surrealism. So as I kind of mentioned, we have such a strange book here. We're trucking along through this narrative about a battered woman who is trying to rediscover life and healing, and then we get to page 195 and the whole book changes. Chapter 6 is called The Temple of the Bull. It's 47 pages and it completely changes the game of this thing and fills us with fantastical Greek myth related content and it's really very curious and uh, a lot of fun to sift through actually. So some of the myth tie-ins are moderately confusing to grasp the full myth of what he's might be working with. I'll explain that in a second. Um, but basically how it all gets started is Rosie's, of course, trying to start a new life. Norman's on the hunt for her. Uh, when she goes to the pawn shop early in the novel, once she escapes, and finds a painting when uh, she's just obsessed with it and takes it home. The painting is titled Rose Matter, and it features a woman on a pony uh, on top of a grassy hill. Her back is to the viewer. The back of the woman is kind of in the foreground and she's staring down on the ruins of a temple holding her right arm up in the air. So Rosie gets super involved with this painting. She just can't stop looking at it. She can't stop sharing it and strange things starts happening once she brings the painting home. We soon get our first occurrences of magical realism. The painting features high grass and soon Rosie goes from hearing loud crickets from her bed at night to seeing dead crickets on the floor in her apartment as well as behind the picture frame. So we swiftly go from magical realism, which is really subtle and slight, to full-on surrealism when Rosie completely steps into the painting, which has enlarged to the size of her apartment wall, and she's 100% in the grassy field walking toward the woman on the pony and she's wearing a tunic it's a, kind of like a shorter toga called a chiton and the color of the tunic is rose matter a purplish reddish shade 
So if you guys remember Lisey's story, um, my coverage of that is a little earlier in the podcast if you want to jump back and listen to that one, but we definitely have magical realism there. And this is on that same wavelength, except for in Lisey's, I think it goes way deeper. So for Lisey's story, she sort of beams herself to the mystical place that only existed in connection with her husband. Um, Scott Landon. And so this painting seems to be a bit of a portal key, so to speak, and it allows Rosie to completely transcend dimensions. Um, What's interesting is the way it's handled at first, it seems like a dream, but then the deeper we go and once Rosie returns, the reader finds out it 100% wasn't a dream. But what I really enjoy about chapter six, guys, is it's a complete 180 degree twist from the recovery abuse narrative that we're engaged in. And I I love that because we have this absolutely nutballs chapter of the surreal where Rosie steps into not only another painting, or pardon me, not only she steps through a painting into another world, into another time, and then yet this time is completely connected to her and so forth. So we've got some really cool magical realism and full-on surrealism in this novel right around chapter six. So my second topic I want to talk with you guys is the symbol of blood. So blood is quite a uh, symbolic entity in this book, guys, specifically the color red or more concentrated on the novel, the shade of rose matter red is a symbol in the book for many things, attitudes, people, um, It's not only the title of the painting, Rosie starts referring to the woman in the painting as Rose Matter. And then we also have this really iconic scene in the story when Rosie is in the painting and a character in that world, which I'm assuming is the City of Lud, but I don't know that they could have just referenced the City of Lud. I might be if I'm getting my wires crossed there, but um, one of the characters takes... um, And this character, her, in the painting, her name is Dorcas, but she's actually the symbol Windy Yarrow for the prostitute that Norman murdered. So really cool tie-in strangeness there. But anyway, she takes a piece of Rose's blue nightgown and then sort of cuts herself and dabs a bit of her own blood onto the blue fabric. And the red blood mixed with the blue dye creates the rose matter shade and it's such a huge symbol uh, for maybe how that shade is rendered and or where in real life we would see that shade of red and it seems to be a great symbol for female blood either menstrual or just from the physical body femininity female suffering and as we come to see in the novel All of the women in Rosie's life have been victims. Uh, When we look at all the places where we see the color rose matter, that actual purplish red color seems to derive from blood and bruises. It's a color that elicits deep pain response in its richness. But one of my favorite scenes, and it's so small, is that 
chunk of blue nightgown cloth dabbed with the blood of the character Dorcas and it creates the rose matter shade and I find that symbol very very meaty in its uh, iconic sort of content of what it could share with the reader in terms of what the shade of rose matter means. That piece of cloth is definitely utilized by Rosie in our next segment, which is the Greek mythology portion. So one thing I also love about chapter six, the Temple of the Bull, is so many great visuals, guys. I can't stress enough just how cool and interesting everything gets when the reader arrives to chapter six. It's it's awesome. There's a ruined temple, but inside there are several layers and per Greek mythology we have descending layers um, that kind of get started entering through holes in caves. Many Greek tales have characters who find a hole in a cave uh, or a hole in a cliff face or mountainside and they enter in and start working their way down into the underworld. And we totally have that here. Rosie enters into the broken rubble and she quickly sees it resembles the church she attended as a youth. She also crosses a river which waters are very inky black. She must gather seeds and they happen to be coincidentally pomegranate seeds from a tree as she makes her way to the maze of the bull in an attempt to fetch the baby of Rose Matter. So in Greek mythology, it's always heavily emphasized that mortals who enter the underworld must never ever eat or drink anything from that place because if you do, you can never leave. And so I'm going to tie that in with one of the myths King is exploring here. But we have a hybrid of that in this novel as the pomegranate seeds seem to be coming from what Rosie calls a tree of death. If she eats them, she'll die. The Black River, however, is incredibly tempting to Rosie. It, its scent and its coolness pools to her, but she has been told if she drinks it, she will forget everything. So we have a little bit of a hybrid sort of king taking his own path with that. Um, what's also really interesting is Rosie must enter the temple completely naked. Um, I don't have a specific myth to tie this one to, but the Greeks in general would often engage in the Olympic Games in the nude as well as duels. So nude is definitely part of the Greek motif, um, but some of the Greek myths that King is working with, I've got three specifically. So one is the symbol of the pomegranate seeds, and this is specifically connecting to the myth of Persephone in the underworld and Hades. So Persephone is a nymph. Her mother Demeter is the goddess of really agriculture and crops and I'm, I might be missing the boat if she's just like the earth goddess. She's also a symbol for Mother Earth, but Persephone is her daughter. She's kidnapped by Hades, Lord of the Underworld, 
who fell in love with Persephone and wanted her as his wife. And she's held down there for months and months and months. And she knows that if she eats the food of the underworld, she will be doomed to stay there forever. But after so long, she's so hungry and she's really lost all hope that she'll never see her mother again that she does manage to eat, I believe it's four to six pomegranate seeds. And that's kind of the reason why half the year Persephone must remain in Hades and half the year she can come back to visit Earth, which is the reason why we have the seasons. So she revisits her mother Demeter in the spring and summer and then in the Earth, uh, or pardon me, in the cold parts of the earth for winter and fall. She is down in the underworld, but the pomegranate seeds are directly connected with the myth of Persephone. Secondly, we have the maze of the Minotaur, which is the story of Theseus and Ariadne on the island of Crete. So this is the actual temple of the bull we have here, which is a huge, huge plot device in this novel. But the myth itself uh, is from the cursed King Minos, Poseidon curses his wife and she gives birth to a monstrous half bull, half man beast. And so King Minos imprisons him in a giant maze because he's a total monster. And Daedalus, who's the father of Icarus, is the one who constructed the maze. And Icarus, of course, is the guy with the feathers who flew too high. So he built the maze to imprison the bull. And every year they kidnap seven men and seven women from all over Greece and as a sacrifice to feed the monster. And so Theseus is the man who decides enough is enough. I'm sick of people being kidnapped and eaten. I'm going to slay the beast. And so he, uh, goes as one of the sacrifices, but with intention of killing the bull, but Ariadne uh, helps him, and so she gives him golden thread to find his way through the maze, uh, because it's one thing to kill the beast, but then you have to get out of the maze, which Daedalus constructed it to be, you can never escape. So he escapes with the golden thread, so that's a pretty cool myth. And then the last one, and this is the coolest one and the most perplexing use of meth, and I don't know, I think King really took liberties with this one, but this is the myth of Arrhenes, and Arrhenes I had never heard of actually, and when I looked it up I was like, oh, this is badass. <laughs> but Arrhenes is the Greek name for the Furies, uh, so if you're familiar with the three fates in mythology, these are similar, there are three sisters, but they're way more violent. So. I was super nerding out to this part, so I'm going to read you a little chunk of my research because I definitely think it inspired King's creative process a little bit. Um, but the Arrhenes are more ancient than any of the Olympian deities. Their task is to hear complaints brought by mortals against the insolence of the young, old, child parents and to punish such crimes by hounding the culprits relentlessly. The Arrhenes are crones and, depending upon authors, described as having snakes for hair, dogs' heads, coal-black bodies, bats' wings, 
and bloodshot eyes. In their hands, they carry brass-studded scourges, and their victims die in torment. So we have three sisters. The first, Alecto, is the punisher of moral crimes. Megara, punisher of infidelity, oath-breakers, and theft. And Tisiphone, punisher of murderers. So I loved learning about Arrhenes, but what's interesting in Rose Matter is that King names the bull at the center of the maze Arrhenes. That's what he calls the bull, and that's what it's referred to. So I'm trying to get on board with that a little bit because we have Arrhenes literally derived from three murderous sisters, but he kind of takes the, that name and and this is what I kind of mean by uh, King spinning these stories around a bit and making a little bit of his own boiled down soup with them because the actual Minotaur is the cursed son of King Minos. Um, and so, but yet he names it the name of the Three Furies. So that's who's personifying it. So I was confused because in a way, is it about female retribution? Because um, the bull, when Rosie encounters him, is definitely not benevolent. Because I was thinking, oh, if it's named Arrhenes, maybe it's a dark goddess bull. But we don't see that in the narrative. So I'm also wondering if King was just sort of hopscotching around the myths and just kind of having fun with it and loosely connecting things. Um, my next theory is that perhaps Rose Matter the one on the pony is perhaps one of the Arrhenes, but I can't be sure. Um, the other thing I wanted to mention in regards to the sort of snake-headed fury um, mentioned for the Arrhenes is I really feel that Rose Matter is a Medusa-like entity, mostly because in the myth of Medusa, you have Perseus who actually destroys her. He is able to cut off her head, but Medusa is the one with a head full of snakes, but every man who looks upon her turns to stone. And in Rose Matter, when Rosie is there, she never looks upon um, Rose Matter. She's always looking down or looking away because something compels her to not look at her. And I believe she's actually warned by the character Dorcas to not look at her. And we find out later only a small line in the last act of the book where she says, if you look at her, you'll go mad. So I think King is playing with the Medusa myth a little bit as well by making Rose Matter someone who is, we do find out in fact monstrous. Rose Matter is an entity that becomes creature-like. Um, she also seems to have some sort of either a, a rot about her, either a plague where basically girlfriends got zombie skin, which is so interesting. And it's something that Rosie remarks on when she sees Rose Matter reaching out. She's really only able to look at her hands because Rosie feels really uncomfortable and always looks down and looks away and doesn't look at Rose Matter directly. Uh, so I really also detect the Medusa element uh, that King's playing with as well. 
So to recap what I'm most enjoying uh, and what I find most unique about Rose Matter, we do have the magical realism and the surrealism. We have blood and its symbolism and the shade of Rose Matter, the color. We've got some Greek myths, specifically Persephone and the pomegranate seeds, Theseus and the Minotaur, Arenes, and Rose Matter as Medusa. So that is my recap of that. I have one little chunk of text that I wanted to share with you guys. This is from chapter six, the temple of the bull. And I wanted to kind of share some of the imagery, the description, the really powerful stuff that King is bringing to the table on this one. So this is on page 214. She swallowed and heard a dusty dry click in her throat. Again, acting with almost no awareness with what she was doing, Rosie ran a hand up her side, over the swell of her breast and across her neck, collecting moisture and then licking it out of her palm. This did not slake her thirst, but only awakened it. The water gleamed a slick black as it flowed around the stepping stones, and now that queerly attractive mineral smell seemed to fill her whole head. She knew how the water would taste, flat and airless like some cold syrup, and how it would fill her throat and belly with strange salts and exotic bromides, with the taste of memoryless earth. Then there would be no more thoughts of the day when Mrs. Pratt, white as snow she had been except for her lips, which were the color of blueberries, had come to the door and told her family, her whole family, had been killed in a highway wreck. No more thoughts of Norman with the pencil or Norman with the tennis racket. No more images of the man in the doorway, of the wee nip, or the fat lady who had called the women at Daughters and Sisters welfare lesbians. No more dreams of sitting in the corner while the pain from her kidneys made her sick, reminding herself over and over to throw up in her apron if she had to throw up. Forgetting those things would be good. Some things deserved forgetting, and others, things like what he had done to her with the tennis racket, needed forgetting, except most people never got the chance, not even in a dream. Rosie was trembling all over now, her eyes welded to the water flowing past like transparent silks, filled with smooth black ink. Her throat burned like a brush fire and her eyes pulsed in their sockets and she could see herself going down flat on her belly, sticking her whole head into that blackness and drinking like a horse. So I really like that scene in particular because we're getting a really awesome description of that black river of forgetfulness which is so mythic and ominous and pulling to her but yet inside the temple I really view the whole exposition of Rosie much like kind of a vision quest or you know either a almost as if girlfriend took some peyote in the desert and she's having a real crazy ayahuasca journey where she's going through her life and the dark parts of the soul and I like that King is using the Greek myth and the underworld and the maze as a way to unlock the pain in Rosie's heart um, and maybe 
allow her to heal and let go from it on this quest. So the quest nature of the surrealism and the magical entry into the painting is also super cool and worth mentioning and I like that that scene is bringing up the memories of the past for Rosie. So lots of good stuff there. So let's go ahead and transition now to my favorite parts of the novel and the areas where ah, hit or miss. So I'll see you there. everybody we've made it to our last section featuring coverage and thoughts on the novel Rose Matter so I'm going to share with you what I feel is working in the book the parts that I approved of that I enjoyed and then I have one or two where I kind of wish it would have been done a little bit differently and then we'll head into my ultimate final thoughts and we'll say farewell to Rose Matter so the first that I actually am really enjoying about Rose Matter, and this is really why I want you guys to read it, to maybe explore this with me a little bit, is romance genre question mark. So one thing that I noticed kind of right away, it's a little fun, but it's how Steve really starts out with a plot used quite a bit by romance novelists, guys. This typically, uh, or they typically always have a for the most part, a blank female canvas character, somebody who uh, female readers might be able to uh, imprint on a little bit if you remember such successes as the Twilight franchise. You know, we have a very blank canvas teenage girl. All we know is that she doubts herself immensely and trips a lot. And many females could potentially identify with that one so it was very very easy to get many many girls plugging themselves into the female character but typically in romance novels we have a female who undergoes a lot of ad um, adversity she's either abused she's coming from a war-torn nation heartbreak heartbreak um, something where she, there's just a lot against her and then insert the quote and she thought she would never love again um, and we actually have a little bit of this in this novel guys and it's kind of really interesting to explore if you take out the parts where stupid Norman Daniels is speaking, which unfortunately we have quite a bit of that, we have a woman, if you're just really laying out the foundation of this story, we have a woman discovering love and Bill Steiner is a quintessential romantic guy. Uh, as I kind of mentioned in the character section, right away he comes to Rosie's apartment and tells her, I can't stop thinking about you, please go to dinner with me. And I like it, I'm on board, but as I was reading it, it felt like King was really playing with the seeds to a romance novel a little bit. And the only way he was sort of differentiating from the path is by making the villain ultra, ultra terrible. Um, but overall, if you're isolating these chapters, um, if you're looking closely, it could be sort of seeing King's attempt at romance or maybe 
unconsciously writing a romance, which is kind of interesting. So we have the beginning ingredients, most definitely, because as much as I love the date and I love the connection between Bill and Rosie, it's really prepackaged for success. And oftentimes, you know, true romance is slightly bumpy. Um, bumpier most definitely which is why if you head back to the dead zone and in the first few chapters of that that's why I really enjoy the date between Johnny and Sarah because that one felt real life sort of fraught with uncertainty they didn't really they liked each other there's flirtation but there's a lot of gray area and that's where all the mystery and magic is but with this one this one is set up to be uh bill's like i can't stop thinking about you and just he's a bold guy and uh that can work it can for sure but i'm i i got the romance vibe really hard the other thing I liked, we've got lots of King connections in this one, guys. So if you are a regular King reader, he he does some good shout-outs. Paul Sheldon, uh, the author in Misery, was mentioned, as well as the Misery Chastain novels. Quite a few references to those. There are also a few Dark Tower references. I may have missed, I think I caught one of them because they mention... Ka and the wheel of Ka and I know that's a big thing in Dark Tower. I know that it's a, a word indicative of destiny, of fate, and then Ka-tet is, I hope I'm saying that right, please don't kill me Dark Tower fans. Um, the Ka-tet is like your group uh, or those brought to your life by fate or destiny. So um, I'm very new to that but that is mentioned quite a bit. And then one thing I really, really loved because I'm such a fan of Lisey's story, guys, and I really, if you have read Lisey's story, my friends, please, please, please read Rose Matter because I feel that King was cracking some eggs in the Lisey's story idea pool with this novel because there are some connections. For example, we have a chapter called Viva Zibul. B-O-O-L. The word bool is everywhere in Lisey's story. Granted, it has a different connotation. Here in Rose Matter, bool means actual bull. It's sort of cheeky. It's um, a play. I guess it's when Norman Daniels is wearing a literal bull mask, it's how it kind of sneaks out of his mouth and him sort of being cheeky and menacing. But then King uses it in Lisey's story to mean like several things from gotcha, aha, uh -huh, a joke, the outcome, um, surprise, but mostly surrounding with the outcome of a trick or a joke. So I think the two are very much connected. And so the fact that we're seeing the word bool here was just like, oh my God, Lisey's story. And then as I also mentioned, we do have the transporting of a woman to another world. And we also have in my next point, 
the removal of said villain in that other world. So my third point that I really enjoyed about Rose Matter is I am satisfied with the end of Norman Daniels. So I will not spoil what actually happens, but I just want to let you all know I was satisfied. And this is very different um, because the last time with the other bad guy I hated so much, Big Jim Runny, I was not satisfied and it really took me a while to come to peace with it. But this one, I was very satisfied. I actually think, you know, King could have included more details. I would have been all about that actually, but I enjoyed the way it went down. So that is something that is encouraging is I think when you have a villain as horrifying as Norman Daniels, the comeuppance needs to be on par and uh, I I enjoyed that. I, I was okay with it. So I closed the book with peace and was able to kind of breathe a big sigh of relief, thank goodness. So. Those are my three that I enjoyed, the romance genre tiptoeing, we'll call it, the King Connections mentioned, especially that to Lisey's story, guys. I really am getting a big Lisey's story vibe with this one. And then I'm also satisfied with the conclusion of Norman Daniels. So I have two things that I wasn't super crazy about, and... This is the overall alternating chapters in general. So the narrative structure is something that made me a little upset and fatigued simply because Norman is so awful, guys. I just can't emphasize that enough. He is terrible. Um, I, ugh, he's so despicable. And so unfortunately, we hear from him almost every other chapter, and I think in my imagination when I look at what King may have been trying to do is create that sort of Little Red Riding Hood, Big Bad Wolf, or like Rosie as the little lamb trying to escape, and then the wolf is after her. And it kind of, sort of creates that momentum of him chasing her, him on her tail, on her tracks, and he's... Every other chapter, we're getting a Rosie Norman, Rosie Norman. I really wish that would have been done differently because Norman is so gross, guys, and he is the reason why I feel many would set this book down because he's just so repelling. And the Rosie chapters, I think, need to be longer. Uh, or if, you know, instead of just such a frequent run-in with Norman, if you want, just give us a lot of Rosie and minimal Norman. You can kind of keep her on the tail, on her tail, and keep him, keep that momentum and that suspense, but rather than directly hearing from him, let third-party characters, you know, sort of have Norman in their POV, and Norman can kind of be in the background, which would have made it even spookier. For example, you know, one of our side characters can report talking with a man who was chain smoking or some of the Norman Daniels quirks and colloquialisms could come out. That is super spooky. I think it would have worked just as well rather than these incredibly fatiguing chapters of this very, very ugly human being who is the worst. And so unfortunately, we're in Norman's head quite a bit. It's gross. I don't like being there. It's very upsetting. 
So I kind of wish that would have been done differently. And if I were King's editor, I would have limited the amount of time we were in Norman's head. I also would have had more side characters reporting on Norman. So maybe Norman being a sort of, uh, what's the word, jumping around from scene to scene very much like a wraith in the shadows much more than an upfront big bad wolf where we're just hearing his voice all the time he's awful and he's so gross that for me it was very fatiguing to read his chapters i was super over it so i wish the narrative structure would have been a little bit different the last thing I felt that I would have liked used more, I just felt it was underutilized, is the baby. So inside the magical world of the painting, the main task that Rosie undergoes, the main mission, is Rose Matter tells Rosie to descend into the temple, the ruins, to get her baby. And she can hear this infant crying in the distance. And she just kind of tells her, go get my baby. And so Rosie is successful. And the baby, of course, is the symbol for the one she lost, which was a daughter, Rosie, named Caroline. But we don't really find out how the baby is connected to Rose Matter, what happens to the baby, why she couldn't go in there herself and get it. There's a lot of questions in regards to if the baby was even real or if it was just sort of, you know, this sort of hologram thing where it was just a token as a test to see if Rosie was brave enough to, um, because she, she is successful by getting the infant back. She returns it to Rose Matter and then Rose Matter says that she'll pay her back, kind of an IOU, which is pivotal for the latter half of the book, but... I don't know what the heck happened with the infant. It was a really cool device used. I wondered if the infant was in fact very special. Um, for those of you who have seen one of my favorite 80s movies, Willow, there is a very special infant girl named Alora Dannon who is the coming savior of that fantasy world. She's going to bring about peace and justice and destroy the evil queen. Something, I mean, they could have done something with it but um, in terms of the trying too hard thing that King is quoted to have had on this story I don't know about trying too hard but he cut some corners for sure and I feel that maybe the baby was just a symbol and this is why I think the whole descent into the temple might have just been some shadow work that Rosie needed to do in terms of like her own peyote journey into her own subconscious to maybe let go of the child she lost maybe quit blaming herself etc etc but yeah, so I, um, I don't know. So I wish that the more of the baby stuff was utilized in a stronger way. So that's about all I have directly. We could talk about the ending a little bit, but um, it's working. It's working. I think if you guys want to talk about the ending, please write in uh, to the show, uh, either at our Gmail account or on the socials, because I'm okay with it. I know a couple people maybe found it slightly eye roll, but I think it it 
<laughs> I can't say the word wound and round. I just had a mini like <laughs> mini stroke moment. Um, so I think it wound up nicely or wound down is probably a better phrase. Uh, I was satisfied with it. However, if you would like to discuss it more, I'm your girl. So please reach out if you do want to talk about the ending, but I'm okay with it. But overall, my final thoughts on Rose Matter, guys, I can see why this one is probably very low on the totem pole for many King readers, but aside from the very difficult, violent, graphic subject matter, the very strongly sad and somber tone in much of the story, once you get past, I think, those first 200 pages and we get to the surrealism parts, I was reading a whole new book, I think, guys, and that's why I'm very interested in Rose Matter. I also detected a lot of early seedlings for Lisey Story, which is one of my top ten. And if you haven't read Lisey Story, or if you're interested in the more cerebral, strange, uh, magical realism king expeditions, please dive into uh, Lisey Story and listen to my coverage on that novel. But I'm getting such a Lisey Story vibe with this, which I enjoy. I also enjoy that, you know, we really have two different books. We have this uh, female-centered narrative about survival and trauma and healing. We also have a psychotic villain on her heels just causing absolute havoc. Um, and then we have this magical entrance into another world, specifically Midworld, I believe. So I'm I'm all about it. I'm all I kind of enjoy these three chunks, these three maybe the three fates that King is working with or the three furies of the story that he is stringing together. So this novel makes me curious and I'm content with that. I'm content with looking back on Rose Matter as being kind of rough in tone and subject matter, but there were some cool parts that got me really curious. Basically, all of the chapters, specifically chapter six, the Temple of the Bull, are so cool, totally left field, total 180, completely changes the book. Some readers, I think, found that jarring, and perhaps that may have been the reason why they did not like the novel, is all of a sudden they were on board with a completely different narrative, and then they're like, what the hell happened? So I, I'm okay with it. I'm, I actually really enjoyed the fact that we had a complete turnaround in subject and plot, and I'd really like to know what you guys think. So Rose Matter is, uh, as you can see from this very long episode, episode has a lot of points to discuss and I would love to discuss it further with you. So this one is remaining very much open. So if you guys do head into Rose Matter, reach out. Let's talk about it. Let's keep it going because this one is, this one's meaty. This is a meaty book despite only getting, you know, three, three and a half stars in a lot of areas. A lot to talk about with this one. So I would love to hear your thoughts specifically on Renyi's and what he's doing with the bull. Let's talk about it. I am all ears and wanting to discuss this one more. So please tune in to my friend's podcast, Jess and Kendra, Palaver Under, uh, un uh, Uncovering, pardon me, um, Uncovering Weird Lit. Uh, I'll include a link to that in some of the social 
uh, notes there. So tune in and see what we have to see say as a group of women on Rose Matter, which I think is important. So more about that later. Coming up, we will potentially have another SKTV. I might have another show long forgotten where I'm going to have some notes on that. And then perhaps another four-story novella collection down the road. So stay tuned wherever you are in the world. Please take care and stay safe. And thank you for sticking with me. And I'll talk to you soon. Thank you.